Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 52, The Wealth of Nature with John Michael Greer. In this episode, we welcome JMG back to the Plant Cunning Podcast to talk about his book, The Wealth of Nature, about how everything really depends on nature, what value is, what wealth is, what the economy is, and what we should be investing our time, effort, and money into in a declining economy. Now, this episode does not have the best quality audio, and I did a lot of work editing it to try to make it better, but it is what it is, and the information is really valuable, so uh, I hope you enjoy it despite the audio problems. Now, this is also just part one of the conversation. Part two is about biochemic cell salts and JMG's experimentation with them and 19th century occultism and all sorts of fun stuff like that. But that will be just for our patrons uh, at patreon.com slash plantcunning. And we'd really like to thank all of our patrons, especially our two new patrons, Veronica and Don. Thank you and welcome. And... Uh, If any of you are interested in becoming a patron, it really helps us do this because it does take a lot of time and effort. Um, And for the $9 and up, you get access to fresh new bonus episodes with some really amazing guests. Um, But thank you to everybody who listens. And if you want to support in other ways, you can always uh, like like and review on iTunes and of course, share with your friends. So thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Today we are thrilled to have back for the third time John Michael Greer on the Plant Cunning Podcast. Welcome, John. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Um, it's a beautiful autumn day here in Providence, and um, you know, life is good. Excellent. Yeah, it's a beautiful day here, too. We've had a quite a fall, just so warm and sunny. Hmm. Last year, we had a frost in September. <laughs> so uh, this is pretty good. Not, not good for your fall crops, yeah. No. No. I, I definitely cried. Yeah. But this is this is a good one. So uh, today, we wanted to kind of have a conversation loosely based off of your book, The Wealth of Nature, and, you know, mm-hmm. how do we, what, what does wealth mean in a declining economy? Mm-hmm. And then also a little bit later, talk about cell salts, which is a really interesting modality that isn't really talked about much lately. And there are a lot of interesting historical uh, perspectives on, on, on it. So, so first of all, um, your book, The Wealth of Nature, that was first published about 10 years ago, right? And it's just been re-released as a new edition? It's in the middle of, it's been delayed by maybe a week. Um, you know how everything's being delayed right now. There are all the shortages and so on. I've had some projects, some book projects that have been knocked back by several months. This one is is going to come out within a few days. But yeah, it'll be out from And um, I didn't actually have to make many changes. Oh, yeah. that's That was yeah. something we were going to ask you. Like, what's what's changed over the last 10 years? Okay. They, well, the thing is, there have been a lot of changes, obviously. But in terms of the theme of this book, because this book is not like some of my other books on peak oil and so on, those were very much focused on the situation we were in now. I've had to update those. 
those because the situation has gotten much worse since then. Uh, but the wealth of nature is talking about, about basics, about fundamentals. What is going on with the economy? What is an, how does an economy work? As opposed to how do economists claim that an economy works? It's a huge amount of difference there. Um, and how does that relate to the natural world? How does that relate to the cycles of expansion and contraction? All the rest of it. Um, those basics haven't changed much. So I had to remove a few um, a few comments here and there that were very topical, very much a function of what was going on when I first wrote it, and um, just kind of clean it up for the long term. But the basic concepts, I'm very pleased to say, have stood up extremely well. And so I'm, I'm delighted to see it coming out in a new edition. That's great. So could you go a little bit into what the, those basic concepts are? Okay. No, no, this is great. Um, yeah. So, what what is the what is the economy? What, what do economists think the economy is Com- like? Well, the, economists believe that. Okay, um, economists believe that what happens is you throw money around and resources and things magically appear in response. It's hilarious. You, you can literally have them saying, "Look, we have there will not be a problem with resources as long as we have enough capital to invest." As the waving around money magically makes like oil appear in right. strata underneath the ground, they seriously argue this that there can be there can be no resource crisis as long as there's enough money. It's exactly the same mentality as you know the famous joke: "I can't be overdrawn; I still have checks left." Right, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And so, so you have to start by recognizing that all wealth originally comes from nature. It's transformed from its natural form by human labor, and um, then it enters what I call the second economy, the, or secondary economy, which is the economy of goods and services. Um, you know, the, 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 the phones that we're talking on, the, um, the meals we just ate earlier in the day, um, our homes, and all the other actual things that people want and need, physical things, physical services, physical goods, that's the second economy. Then there's the tertiary economy, which is money. Money is not wealth. If I could get a good blacksmith to make a branding iron with the words, money is not wealth on it, I I would go around branding those words brutally into the backside of the world's economists because they think money is wealth. An enormous number of people think money is wealth. Here's Here's a thought experiment. You're dropped on a desert island. Okay. There's no food. There's no water. 
Um, there's just rocks and sand in the sea going whoosh, whoosh on the side. Okay, you just parachuted there. You have a choice. You can have $1 billion, or you can have a supply of, uh, you know, the much less valuable supply of food and water that will get you through until the ship comes and picks you up in a week. Which do you want? Well, I guess it depends if uh, the ship is still coming in a week to pick me up or not. <laughs> but yeah, I yeah, get your point. Yeah, You get the point. You get the point. Um, money is a system of tokens. It is not wealth. It's a system of tokens that we use to distribute wealth. Real wealth comes from nature, is produced by human labor. You know, it's, it's transformed, I should say, by human labor into goods and services in the secondary economy. The, do- the tertiary economy is just a system of tokens. It's a game that we play. It's, you know, it has its points. Um, money is actually a very efficient way, in some ways, to transfer wealth, to manage wealth. The problems with money, we, we can get into those in great detail, the problems with money come when people game the money system in order to extract wealth. Right, and then you without, have the... With, with, without producing anything for it, yeah. And this is where you have intermediation. Intermediation, yes. Um, how deep do you want me to go with intermediation? Just, just go. <laughs> go, okay. Okay, so let's start out. We can start out with the basic economic transaction, okay? You have something I want. I have something you want. We get together, we trade, we shake hands. It's good. That's basic. That's, that's the simplest form of economic interaction. On the other hand, it doesn't make, if, if everyone's just doing that, it doesn't produce a lot of options for people to um, charge rent. This is called rent seeking, okay? Where you find out some way that you can insert yourself in that transaction and say, no, you each have to give me something in order to have that transaction. Money is an obvious thing. Money is based on debt, okay? So anytime you're getting money, you're using money, people are profiting from it. The bank is charging you interest, okay? Let's say you use a credit card or what have you. You write a check. There's the, you know, once money enters the picture, um, of course, if it's just if it's cash, then the government, um, you know, the government is hiding checks on the basis of that, of that money. So, you know, you've got somebody getting, in, getting into that thing, into that interrelation, and, and extracting wealth from it. And then more people jump into the jump into the game. In today's America, the level of intermediation is so high that many businesses can't make a profit because too much blood is being sucked out of them by a, by a selection of intermediate intermediate vampires. You've got the government wants its taxes, the bank wants its interest, um, it wants their rent. Um, the city government had their fees. There are all of these things piled up on top that are all coming between the person who wants to buy a good and service, a good or a service, and the person who wants to provide the good or service. I mean, go go into the fiber states these days. I, this is probably too true in the in the place where you live. Go into the old business district and watch Pat walk past one empty storefront after another. There are lots of people who would love to open businesses. They can't because they can't make money at it because everybody has their hand out. All the intermediaries are there draining them dry. And so you have an, you have an economic system that at this point literally penalizes people for trying to produce goods and services because all the intermediaries want their share. Yeah. <laughs> but then you have the giant corporations who have enough money to uh, pay off all of those. So they end up, you oh, know, yeah. we have Walmarts going up, and but all of yeah. the 
other stories. Yeah, yeah, in, the, in that case, what you have, this is one of the play, one of the economies of scale that people don't like to talk about. Um, the the um, regulatory um, regulatory economies of scale. Okay, so you have um, Walmart. There's the, gov- the government, has, the state government, passes a regulation saying that you know um, you need to fill out um, these 37 forms for every transaction, and um, Walmart has enough money, enough people, enough overhead. They they can cover that. They can automate it. Um, Your little mom and pop store can't. They don't have enough. So they go under because they've had yet another load um, placed on top of them. Much of the the unstated reason for government regulation at this point is to drive small businesses out of business to leave things clear for the Walmarts of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the thing, you, no, people, people will talk. People will talk about regulation. And say, well, yes, but it's for the environment, or it's for, it's for animal safety, it's for this, it's for that. Have you noticed that the environment isn't getting any better? <laughs> despite all the yeah. stuff that's being piled, on? the the environment, animal safety, all this stuff is an excuse or a collection of excuses. What's what is actually going on is that big business and big government are colluding to transfer more and more wealth to the hands of big business and big government. And they're, they're, rec- they're driving the economy into the ground in the process. And so, um, you know, it's, it's always useful to be a little skeptical when people insist, oh, no, we've got to do this for the environment. You know, we've got to, and, you know, is the environment important? Of course. Is what we're doing, is the regulatory state a successful way of saving the environment? Obviously not. So maybe we should try something else for a change. And of course, there always is the balance point too, because mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who just want absolutely no regulations, and that I don't know if that's really mm-hmm. helpful either. But you I, know. I highly re- there's, there's anyone who believes in no regulations at all. I highly recommend they pick up a copy of Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, which talks <laughs> about uh, how food um, products were prepared in the days before health and safety regulations, when right. it happened, uh, and this was not just in the novel. This happened, but novel's a great place to read about it, where, you know, the workman accidentally falls into the grinder and his body goes into the sausage. Ugh. Oh, yeah, it happened. <laughs> it was a really messy scene. And so, yeah, the thing is, the opposite of one bad idea is usually another bad idea. So the opposite of, of too much regulation is too little regulation. In between there, it's a sensible point. But we are nowhere near that middle most of in most right. American public life, we're fantastically overloaded with regulations. So, you know, a, a, if if the economists actually cared about the economy, if all of the government officials making weaving crocodile tears about the economy actually cared about something other than their <clears throat> campaign contributions <clears throat> from big corporations, um, okay, let's prune down the regulatory state to the regulations that actually help people that actually do something good. And, but, of course, that would mean that Walmart wouldn't have the huge advantages it does. It would mean you know, all the big box stores thrive on, on a, a, an environment of metastatic regulation. Yeah. So to go back to wealth. Um, let's go back to wealth. What, what, is, what is real wealth? Okay, well, let's start with the word itself. Okay, okay. this is one of those yeah. places where if we actually take a look at the word, you can um, wealth comes from the same root as wellness as, as the, the old think of the one we 
sometimes see the old word commonweal, or wheel, W-E-A-L, meaning good stuff, basically. And it actually relates to the word will. Wealth is what enables you to, to do what you want. Yeah, wheel or woe. Wheel or woe, exactly. Wealth is the thing that allows you to live the life you, you want. If you don't have wealth, you can't do what you want. And so anything that facilitates your, your ability to live the life you desire is wealth. Now, that's a very broad, um, very broad level. But the important thing is to notice, to pay attention, what actually is involved here. Again, do you want a billion dollars or do you want enough food? Which of those is actual wealth if you're on a desert island? Obviously the food. Um, and wealth is, you know, to some extent wealth is whatever you, whatever you think it is, whatever you, whatever you have a desire for, whatever you're willing to pay for is wealth. But it's important not to get, not to lose track of the distinction between actual goods and services things that you actually can use, that you want to use, that you want to have in your daily life, and the tokens, like money, that, enab- that might enable you to get um, the wealth you want, the, the actual wealth you want. What we're seeing right now with the, the cascading shortages in the economy, there's a lot of people who have money, and you know, you go down to the, to the store to pick up toilet paper, that's wealth, okay? You definitely want that toilet paper, and they don't have any. How much good is your money doing you? That's a good example of the gap between um, between money and wealth. If you need an eight pack of toilet, you know, eight rolls of toilet paper, um, you know, a hundred dollar bill is not going to do you much. You can wipe yourself with it once, I suppose. But yeah, this this brings me to a a point that I think about a lot, and mm-hmm. that's the uh, the difference and the tension between. Um, value, desire, and need. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the difference mm-hmm. between a want and a need, and mm-hmm. how does that influence what you know what we value oh, and yeah. money itself? Yeah. You know? yeah, no, that's 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 crucial because um, your your actual needs as a human being are very simple, very very simple. You need enough nourishing food to get by. Um, you need enough shelter so you don't suffer from, say, hypothermia. Um, you need clean water. You need a few other things. You don't actually need that much. Um, yeah. Go talk. Go talk to monks at an old-fashioned monastery, assuming they're not under a vow of silence, and talk to them about what their lives are like. They're getting everything they need. They're not getting everything they want that you might want, but they're getting everything they need. It's sparse. It's sufficient. Everything beyond that is a want. Now, there's nothing bad about wanting things. There's nothing bad about saying, you know, um, I, I want that eight pack of toilet paper. Um, or, you know, you want various things in your life. That's fine. Um, but it's important not to get caught, not, not to get caught up in the mistake of thinking that those are needs. You do not need a car. You do not need um, any of the, the, you know, all these other goods and services that people are trying to sell you. In many cases, you may not even want them. But you're being told that you ought to have them, or pressure is being put on you to buy them. Um, I mean, in a consumer economy like ours, long since ran out of actual wants to say nothing of actual needs, and now it's a point of what can we pressure people into getting by you know, pulling various emotional gimmicks of one kind or another. 
Um, that's what advertising is all about. Yeah, the mag the magic of advertising. The magic of advertising. Yeah, I, I mean, I have we. I, I think I think I've already talked about fizzy brown sugar water uh, <laughs> on this on this podcast. You know, and the the extraordinary way that people try to the the advertisers link guzzling fizzy brown sugar water with like this billboard of. of young, happy, attractive people having a great time um, <clears throat> while drinking something that is, you know, the, the idea is to imply that if only you guzzled enough fizzy brown sugar water, um, you would be like them. Of course, that makes no sense logically, but they're not aiming at the logical parts of your mind. Right. And so, so we've, got, we've got a situation now where there are, the, the, there are human needs, okay, those need to be met. There are human wants, there's, which cover a spectrum from the um, entirely simple and reasonable up to the absolutely absurd and beyond. And then you have a vast range of other things which are neither needed nor wanted, but which are profitable for manufacturers and manufacturer and um, stores to sell because using enough advertising, using enough pressure, high-pressure tactics, you can, you, can for, you can browbeat people into buying them. And um, value of course. Now, the right. value is one of those slippery words. <laughs> People treat value as though it is a, it's an objective quality of the thing that's valued. You know, here is a, here is a bar of gold. It has value. No, it doesn't. Valuing is an act. It's an action performed by a person. Okay? Your values, your value judgments, the values that you have in the sort of ethical and moral sense, all of these are personal judgments. You know, for one of those monks down in the monastery, that lump of gold means absolutely nothing. Yeah, and to somebody who has a bunch of gold, like who's getting raided by, you know, a, a gang of raiders, that <laughs> that gold means the value of that is that he might, you know, get tortured and killed. Exactly, exactly. So what, what you value is up to you, and it's you who do the valuing. It's no, value has nothing to do with the object. It has everything to do with the subject. Something. So this is the this is the difference between facts and values. To, to bring back that word to one of the class one, one of the classic distinctions in philosophy. You know, for, for example, um, there's a bottle of beer sitting on the table between us. We'll say it's it's dark beer. Okay, and let's say that you really like dark or yeah, you really like dark beer, and I can't stand dark beer. Now we can both agree there is a bottle of beer on the table. It is dark beer. Okay. But you take a sip and go, oh, man, that's good. And I take a sip and go, bleh, okay? That's the difference between the fact and the value. You, if you start saying, well, no, that's, that's not awful, that's good, because, you know, the goodness of that beer is an objective quality of it, then you're acting like an economist, that is to say, an idiot. And so, <laughs> no, and so that, but that's, that's exactly the kind of confusion between facts and values. So one of the lessons that I would, I would encourage people to pursue as they, as they think about this is to remember that your values are yours. You choose them. And if somebody's pushing something, you, let's say you know, the billboard that's yammering on about fizzy brown sugar water, and your response is, yuck, then go with that. Right. Accept the fact that to you, fizzy brown sugar water has no value at all. Except, well, I mean, some varieties will remove rust. From, from um, but, you know, the phosphoric acid in, in a lot of cola drinks. Well, it actually makes a very good rust rust remover. So it, you could use it for that, no doubt. Yeah, but, if you want to, like, rot your teeth out, that's another good uh, use for it. You know, if you really want to have bad teeth, I mean, then that's if that's something you value, um, you know, by all means. But right. 
Yeah, but but value really is up to you, and that's one of your opportunities to exercise freedom in the world. You don't have to accept the values being put, the, the quote values, unquote, being pushed at you by the advertisers or by the media generally or by the schooling system or by any of the other big institutions that are trying to tell you how to live your life. Your values are yours. Right. Theirs. And this is the, the, the point where, like, magical practice or spiritual practice or even just, mm-hmm. like, introspection can be so <laughs> valuable, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. One of the reasons that we have an environment so saturated by the media, one of the reasons you go into a lot of restaurants or bars these days, it's not just there's one television. There's like six TVs on every wall, flat screens yelling down at you. The point is to distract you. The point is from key, to keep you from stopping and, um, and, and reflecting and introspecting and looking at yourself and saying, okay, what do I actually want out of life? Do I want fizzy brown sugar water? No, Socrates, I do not. Uh, it tastes like carbonated prune juice. Uh, and, um, or, you know, do I want this lifestyle that's being pushed at me? No, I do not. What do I actually want? The thoughts like that are kryptonite to the consumer economy. And as the consumer economy has been increasingly running rough, as it's been increasingly breaking down at the fringes, the, the use of saturation media um, pressure to try to push noise that people keep them from looking at themselves, keep them from doing their own thinking, it's really quite impressive. Um, it's one of the reasons I don't, there's a lot of restaurants that I go to these days. Yeah. Yeah. So to go back to, uh, real wealth again um we hear about this term natural capital and Mm -hmm. what's your take on that um it's it's a baby step in the right direction right okay um the the idea of natural capital is that it needs to be recognized that the natural world is a source of economic value the natural capital of a country for example is the basis for is the basis for its entire economy it's it's topsoil. These various other things are natural capital. You can and you can almost get economists, those that aren't too stuck on living in, in their own la la land. You can almost get economists to understand um, the importance of the primary economy by talking about its natural capital. Be, I mean, they're, they're used to the idea of to the idea of capital. They're used to the idea of capital investments and so on. And so you can maybe get them to think. You know, it it's still misses the point that all economic activity without exception depends on nature. So I see it as a step in the right direction, but not sufficient. We have to start by recognizing that our economy is a subset of nature. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really important. Well, now there's there's another thing that spins off from that, and I'll I'll follow that for just a moment if you don't mind. Um, One of the great blind spots in modern industrial society is the notion that human Outside of nature, nature's nature. Nature is <laughs> right, right. this thing. This thing over there. We have a park for it, you know. And then there's the human world, which is its own thing. Blah blah blah. You no, know, cities are. You know, cities are part of nature. Yeah. Mm. Try getting try getting a, a, a well-heeled environmentalist to swallow that one. But it's true. Cities are part of nature, just like anthills and beaver dams. Okay, they are because human beings are just another life form. We are part of the life of this planet. We're not some kind of separate creation or anything like that. We're part of this world, part of the biosphere. And it so happens that human beings, 
um, when they have a chance, when they can get the resource together, build cities. Again, the wheat beavers build dams. We build cities. We do some other things. Uh, some of them are smart. Some of them are not. They can certainly be made um, less damaging to the rest of the natural world, and, and that's another issue. But if you start by recognizing that human beings are part of nature, that there's no barrier between human between the human world and the natural world, that all that we do is a subset of the natural world, then you can get beyond baby steps like natural capital and recognize that our economy is a subset of the environment. It's simply one way in which natural energies and, and you know, various energy flows and flows of various kinds of matter go through various changes on this planet. Um, you know, again, the same way that, uh, you know, Trees grow up, saplings grow up, beavers gnaw them down and take them off and put them into dams for a while. It's, it's another part of that. It's a very similar, although much more complex process. So getting the idea that we are part of nature, that we are not in any way separate from the natural world, is, is I think, crucial to an understanding of, of the extent to which, by, by wrecking the environment, by treating the environment purely as a, as a, a goodie bag from which to grab raw materials and a waste bin in which to dump our waste, we're literally destroying economic life. Yeah. <laughs> so the other, the other part about all of this is that we're living in a declining economy also. Mm -hmm. we've, we've already t extracted so oh, much. Yeah so much value, yeah. <laughs> so much natural capital. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with your take on the, the collapse, the future of industrial civilization. Um, mm -hmm. But hey, I can, I can still summarize it briefly. If you yeah. Know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes, so please. let's start, let's start, let's start with that. First of all, um, you need to, it's important to start by realizing that our society has two idiotic approaches to understanding the future. They're both wrong. And most people act as though those two idiotic approaches are the only two possibilities. There's the notion of perpetual progress onward and upward, you know, um, off to some kind of Star Trek future or what have you. And there's the notion of the overnight Hollywood catastrophe where everyone dies. And people act as though those are the only two thinkable options. It's weird. It's as though um, it's it's as though we, you were listening to a weather report, and the two weather people on the on the on the TV are having an argument. You know, it's a it's an ordinary day in October like this one, and one of them is insisting that um, tomorrow's temperature tomorrow it's going to be 112 degrees in the shade, and then it's going to keep on getting warmer and warmer and warmer forever. Winter, yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. And the other person is saying, no, actually, what's going to happen is the temperature is going to drop to 38 below, ten, um, you know, and everyone's going to freeze to death. And these two weather people are having an argument on the TV and acting as though those are the only two options. The, the idea that there might be ordinary autumn weather is not on their radar screen. This is the way people think about the future in, in the modern world. It's either onward and upward to, you know, to in, on, along the great march of progress, or it's crash and burn and everyone dies. Bizarre. Now, what history shows us is something very different. What history shows us is that societies rise and crest and decline. Think long, slow curves, not sudden stop apocalypse, not line zooming straight off into the heavens, rise and fall like a wave. 
Yeah, but we're special. We're it's different this we're time, special. right? Special. We're the we're the most special snowflakes that ever flaked. Right. That's part part of the delusion, of course, is that is exactly that notion that the past doesn't apply, history doesn't matter. We're we're destiny's darlings. What a bunch of crap. I mean, come on. You know, I, I mean, most you'd think most people would outgrow that about the time they they notice that the Harry Potter novels are kind of dull, but. Seemingly not. So, so in fact, civilizations rise, they peak, they decline. Ours peaked quite some time ago. Technology is a leading indicator, or is a trailing indicator, by the way. Um, the technology in a society, technology keeps on improving long after everything else has turned downhill. That was true in, the Roman, in Roman times, for example. Their technology got more and more sophisticated while the empire was falling apart. Of course, it eventually nosedived. But that's just one of those things. Um, so the fact that we have a few more nifty toys than people had 100 years ago does not mean that we're, quote, that we're continuing to progress. It just means that that trailing indicator is, is doing the usual thing. We're in decline. We've been in decline for a long time. Most people have noticed, for example, you need to go outside. Every time, you know, every year that passes, the roads become more cracked, the sidewalks are disintegrating, um, everything's more run down, money to do repairs is harder to find, everything, you know, wages are, are, are creeping downward. On paper, they're going up, but costs are rising faster. Um, everything's getting harder, everything's getting slowly more difficult, more challenging. That's a society in decline. And here in the United States, we've been in decline since uh, about 1970. Western civilization as a whole, Europe, peaked um, right around 1910. So it's 110 years and 111 years into, into decline at this point. And, and you can see that. You know, again, go outside. Look at, look at the world around you and compare it. And then go, go get some pictures to, you know, what things looked like 50 years ago. Take a good look. Notice the differences. It's, it's quite remarkable. And now, some people, I tell that to, and they will go, oh, holy crap, you're right. And then there are the people who freak out completely and insist that it can't be the case and we're going to the stars. This is because faith in progress is a religion in, in the modern world. I mean that quite literally. People put the same kind of, of um, obsessive hopes and grandiose dreams into progress that medieval peasants put into God. Now, you know, the medieval present peasants probably had a better idea, but we don't have to get into that now. The point is that progress is, is the surrogate God of our of modern industrial society. And people, if you suggest that progress is over, that, um, yes, uh, we will still keep on getting more complicated toys for a little while, and then that will start to climb, and that everything else has been on the skids for years now. You know, it's, again, it's like talk, walking up to a medieval peasant and trying to explain to him that, you know, God and the saints and angels aren't there anymore. People get really worried about it. Yeah. So... You know, with the knowledge that we are in a declining mm -hmm. economy, um, how do you uh, invest effectively? What are your suggestions? Ooh. Okay, that's that's a that that is a huge can of worms for a very open it up. Reason. I'm going to open. Okay, let me apply the can opener and say hi to the worms. Uh, some of these, you remember the worms from Dune? Sandworms. Some of these, some of these are that size and about that hungry. So no, yeah, let's, no, let's, let's 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 talk to the worms here. Worm and gander. Um, 
talk to the worms. Um, the problem is that our entire notion of investment was created during a time of economic expansion. The whole idea of investment is you have a dollar, you invest it, and you get a dollar plus back, right? Mm-hmm. The idea is you, you investment should make money. That makes sense only in a growing economy. In a growing economy, your investment is you basically is a share in the, in the overall wealth. The total wealth of society goes up year after year. And by wealth, I mean actual wealth, goods and services. There are more goods, more services, better goods, better services. Um, everything's expanding, everything's growing, and it makes perfect sense to think that you can invest your money and get more back. Even invest your money and get enough back to support your lifestyle. That's only true in a growing economy. One of the reasons that that our current economy is in such states that everyone's still trying to make that happen when we're in a decline. And so there's all of this extra money being churned out while the supply of goods and services is decreasing, um, quality is going down. I think you know, we've all noticed how um, the crapification of products in the stores, everything's more shoddily made, portion sizes are going down. All of the self-inflation is to avoid dealing with the fact that we can generate extra money, sure. Can we generate extra wealth? Not anymore. And so in the sort of in, in the period kind of period we're in right now, the period which we could call hang time, when the economy begins to decline, but the money economy is still being made to expand because everyone expects to get more money. You have this very awkward situation where Everyone thinks they ought to be able to invest money and and have it have it you know get returns and get get a profit. When the actual economy is in contraction, if the money supply matched the economy, every investment on average would lose money, and eventually that's going to happen. Um, how soon is eventually? Well, that depends. I'm watching news from China right now that suggests that some of that some of those losses may show up in a big way very soon. You know, we have um, what some writers are calling the biggest Ponzi scheme in human history, that being the Chinese real estate market, um, is in dire shape. And a vast number of people outside of China have invested trillions of dollars in it. What's going to happen to that that notional wealth? What's going to happen to those tokens? Um, Probably not what you want. So we're in a situation where one way or another, the total amount of actual wealth is declining. The total amount of money is eventually going to have to decline to suit either by um, by massive losses, you know, bankruptcies, um, defaults, or by hyperinflation. You know, where you know, here's your million dollar, you know, here's 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 your gallon of milk, here's your million million dollar bill. Um, look up look up Weimar Germany sometime to find out how that went. And one, but one way or another. We are not in a situation anymore where investments can, um, on average, produce gains in real terms. And so if you're thinking of investing money and preserving wealth and increasing wealth and so on, uh, that train left the station a long time ago. Yeah. So what about... What what about... Go ahead. So what about folks who are investing in things more like natural capital, like land and plants and uh, oh. fixing their house and stuff like that. Do you think that's... Well, no, okay, house, 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 house. Are you using the house as a place to live in or are you using it as a real estate vehicle? 
Right, right. Those are two completely different things. Mm-hmm. Hey, if you buy a house, you'll have a place to live in. That's, you know, and assuming that the government doesn't tax you out of it. Um, yeah. yeah. That's, you know, and that, but if, if you can get a house free and clear so you have a place to live in, that's, you know, that's wealth. It's mm-hmm. wealth that a lot of people don't have right at the moment. Um, if you have a piece of land and you can produce food, that's wealth. Is it going to um, make you rich? No. <laughs> is it going to keep you fed? It might. And this is exactly the point. In an economy of decline, it's necessary to retool not oh, away from um, fantasies of, of, you know, of gain and into the realities of survival in reasonable comfort, if, if you can manage that. You have to start looking, what are my actual needs? What are the things I want badly enough that I'm willing to put the hard work and my own time and energy into it? Because that's what, it's come, that's what come, it comes down to. One of the reasons that societies um, unravel the way they do in periods of decline is, pa- is precisely because most businesses no longer make any kind of economic sense in a period of decline. This is also why religions tend to pick up during periods of decline, because they give you a reason other than profit um, to, to do things. You know, your, your monastery, again, we've got the monks um, with their vow of silence. They're busy copying manuscripts. Okay, why are they copying manuscripts? Not to make a profit. They're doing it for religious reasons. They're doing it because they think they, they feel God wants them to do this. And so all through the Dark Ages, you have people copying manuscripts at a time when the entire economic system had completely, like the, the late Roman economic system, had completely collapsed. Nobody even used coins anymore except for jewelry because it wasn't worth it. The only economic activities that actually functioned were um, growing food on the one hand, and providing necessary services to people who grew food, like blacksmiths on the one hand and warriors on the other. You've got to keep the other, you know, the raiders, the barbarian raiders from, from you know, cutting everyone's throats and taking the food. <laughs> so you have Yeah, to- food security and literal security. Yeah, food security, literal security. That's, that's all that matters in a time of contraction. It comes down to those very basic things. And so you end up with societies that had been very complex, economically complex. They have, you know, they have uh, credit systems. They have very, you know, very intricate systems of exchange. You have um, regional factories, as, as the Romans did, for example, producing products that were shipped all over the empire. And then it unravels because in a time of decline, you can't make a profit doing that. Right. Any, you know, all, the only thing, the, the, the only quote profit is by planting and growing food so you and your family um, you know, can have something to eat. But you also, so, yeah, you, you don't think that we're going to go from this level to uh, medieval to the dark peasants no, no, it takes, uh, level. It takes centuries. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. takes centuries. But keep in mind all the way down, one of the things one of the things you have the people have to get used to is that efforts to make money efforts to make money as a way of providing security will be less and less effective. Mm. And so, if you're thinking in terms of investment, if you're thinking in terms of business, be aware that conditions have changed, and um, you know it doesn't necessarily work the way it used to. You may, you know, invest all of this money and manage to get a business that will keep you and your family fed. 
mm-hmm. these, these sort of these sort of cumulative um, anabolic process, to use um, a term that I used in, in my in my famous paper on the subject. Um, these sort of anabolic process where an economy builds up and builds up fortunes and builds up wealth. That's gone in reverse. We are now in the catabolic process where wealth declines year after year, generation after generation. And it's a matter of what can you hold on to? What can you transfer into terms that are not economic? Um, what can you what can you keep going on the basis of things like gift economies, economies of, of local exchange, um, customary economies, things where you can cut out middlemen. One yeah. of the things, and, and this is going on right now, of course, there's all this yeah. telling in the media about how there's there's job shortages here and or labor shortages here, labor shortages there, all these jobs going unfilled. Why? Well, because we just um, laid off nearly our entire, you know, our, our entire working class workforce for a year of, of virus lockdowns. And the government programs to support people worked about as well as those ever do, which is to say not much. And so an enormous number of people had to find other ways to support themselves, and many of them did it in the under-the-table economy. You know, doing, providing goods and services to people under the table without um, helping all those intermediaries we were talking about, without paying the taxes, paying the fees, paying the bank, paying the real estate, all this stuff, right? Uh, paying the employer. I mean, what, and getting employed is, is, is intermediation these days. You don't just work with, uh, directly with, client, with clients and customers. Somebody hires you, they bring in the clients and customers, and they take most of the cut. You know, they take most of the most of the proceeds and give you a, a very poor share. And so, an enormous number of people have recognized that in a declining economy, employment no longer makes sense. Self-employment, under the table, doing it off the radar screens of the government, um, that makes much more sense. And so, oh, yeah. there are a lot of people who are who are getting by that way, and it's causing total conniption fits. Among right. the among among the well-to-do, among the, the the various well, the various intermediaries who are finding that their lunch counter is closed. Yeah, I mean, even here we had that uh, lumber shortage, and so everyone just started buying more from the Amish sawmills that are just mm-hmm. cutting yeah. local wood, rough cut, <laughs> yeah, for a fraction of exactly. the cost. Uh-huh. Exactly. So yeah, so you go to the and so. Um, I bet that Amish, the, the Amish sawmill owner is looking at that going, well, if this continues, I'll probably bring in another shift. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there, 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 I think uh, a few more new sawmills happened this year. I mm. bet. Um, and yeah, the thing is, that's also something we're going to see a lot of because we had this, this global economy foisted on us as a way to drive down wages and benefits for the working class and to maximize proceeds going up to the top of the pyramid. That's what globalization was about from the, from day one. It was never you know, anything other than another way to, for the rich to get richer. But it's breaking down now because on the one hand, you've got um, fuel shortages, you've got a range of, pro- of shortages, a range of disruptions. It's really starting to sink in that just-in-time ordering is very often not-in-time ordering. And so we have a situation where people are beginning slowly to wake up to the fact that if you're getting it from a factory in the same state, you don't have these problems. And if you're not including these 
fancy high-tech components, which depend on, you know, this component from Taiwan and this component from Germany and this component from, you know, Argentina, then you don't have to worry about these problems either. That's normal. This is a normal part of, this, of the economic transition we're going through. And in the transitional period, while you can still make money now and again, um, people who open up locals, um, you know, businesses providing um, locally needed products to local customers are going to do pretty well. Again, the, the, the local salt mills popping up is a great example, um, rather than getting the stuff from the huge multinationals. So, yeah, um, there, are, there are things that can be done. But it, it, you know, it's all a function of dealing with the challenges of the moment as we, as we work our way down the curve of decline. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so are there any other jobs specifically that you would recommend young people get into right now or services um, or trades oh, yeah. that you think oh, are going to be, yeah. Good heavens, yes. Um, the first thing to do is don't go to college, no matter what. <laughs> right. Um, it's such a scam. Okay. Yeah, just the college, uh, the, the university system in the United States especially, it pretends to be about education. It's not. It is a, it is a marketing gimmick that, ser- that pushes predatory loans on teenagers. Um, and that's all it is. It's a sales gimmick for predatory loans. We call it student loans, which, you know, you can't discharge by bankruptcy. Don't fall for it. Well, the yeah. chancellors and the administrators also get pretty big salaries, so. Oh, they, yeah, exactly, exactly. No, the, 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 people, the people who run the scam get paid extremely well. Um, it's the victims of the scam, quote, students, unquote, um, who, are getting, who are getting screwed, blued, and tattooed. So do not go to college. Do not let yourself get sucked into that, that slime pit. Um, if you want, if, if you have any capacity to work with your hands, find an apprenticeship in the trades. There are plumbers and carpenters and um, blacksmiths and millwrights and all of these things. They're begging for, for apprentices, people who, yeah. who are willing to work, the electricians. And this is stuff where you're going to be working as many hours as you want. You're going to get good yeah. pay. You're, and um, when you've done it for a while, you've learned the trade, you can hang out your own shingle and then you're self-employed. And it's your baby. You can network by way of family and friends and say, yeah, I do, I, do, I do electrical work. Let me know if you have problems with your, you know, with your house, with your house's wiring or with this, that, or the other. I can take care of that. I know people who've done that kind of thing, and they have more work than they know what to do with. They, have, they were not out of work at any point during the shutdown. They were, they were going from one job to the other because, you know, this, there's always something going wrong. You know, you, you, you've got, you, you're a good basic plumber. Somebody's always having a pipe break or they're having you know, the faucet oh, yeah. breaks down or the toilet doesn't work. That's, that's where, the, that's where real, uh, real prosperity is going to come for a lot of young people right now. Get into the trades or otherwise find a niche that other people aren't filling. Um, this is, this is. One of the things about, one of the many reasons not to go to college is that the, the colleges are designed to make you an interchangeable part, like the ones that come out of factories. You have, you know, you have this, you, you have this specific set of, well, notional skills that are just like everybody else who comes out of every other university in the country. Um, does that give you a basis for doing something uh, unique? No. Stay away from it. Look, at, I'm going to hold myself up as, a, as an example, not because I've, you know, I'm particularly a, a shining example of much of anything, but you know, it's, it's like what Hunter S. Thompson used to say, I, I, 
it it works for me. Um, I got into I got into the trade as a writer. I write in um, several niche areas that most other people a don't know much about and b don't write in. I mean, uh, writing writing about occultism, writing about peak oil, writing about a couple of other things that I write about. These are not things where there's a lot of competition. And I publish with small and mid-sized publishers rather than the big ones where you need agents to get into. That's another way, working around the system. These days, I do a lot of astrology. I do, I do political astrology. That's proven to be extremely lucrative for me. So I have this, this series of things that I do. None of it is inside the regular system of employment. None of it is really anything that anyone else is doing exactly the same thing. I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm, I have, you know, during the, during the coronavirus shutdown, my income wasn't hurt at all. In fact, 2020 was the, the most profitable year I've had yet. And so there are lots of niches. There are lots of specialty jobs, things that nobody else is doing because nobody thinks of doing it. Um, there are people who, um, you know, who go into, go into shoe repair and do fairly well at it. Yeah, and are yeah, exactly. Well, our, I'm sure. You, I'm sorry. Go on. Well, our, our listeners, I think a lot of them are herbalists and farmers, and okay. so on. So I think I, I think a lot of those those jobs yeah. are are going to be well, needed. The crucial thing here is don't do what every other herbalist is doing. Don't do what mm. every other farmer is doing. That's yeah. there, there's a real tendency toward groupthink. I've I've watched it in the in the herbal community oh, yeah. where people get caught up in these fads and they end up doing the same thing as everyone else and they don't profit because they're not doing something unique. Um, there was a, there was a farm. There was a an, an herb farm I knew out. I knew the people who were involved in it out of the Pacific Northwest, and what they did was lavender. That was all. I mean, they had their own, they had a vegetable garden. They had some things like that. But most of what they did was lavender. They had every variety of lavender known to the human species, and possibly some that aren't. Um, that was their <laughs> niche, and they did a, they did an amazing job. Lavender grows very well out there, of course, and so they were. But that was their shtick. They were the lavender farmers, and everybody ordered lavender from them. Everybody got plants. Everybody got lavender products because, of course, they did they did lavender lavender sachets and lavender this and lavender that lavender the other thing lavender honey from a local um, apiarist and so on and so they but again they went their own way they came up with their own gimmick and they paid attention to what people wanted the ultimate the, the most effective way to lose everything to crash and burn to go broke is to dis, is to decide well I know what I want to do and who cares what you know other people will just have to decide they want no find out what people want meet their needs meet their wants what people Listen, value yeah yeah what do they value a lot of people like lavender um, a <laughs> lot of people a lot of people like reports on political astrology that don't kowtow to the uh, to you know any of these standard political lines i'm i'm making a fair amount of money with that right now um, and so you you choose you, you choose what you do you find a good or a, ser- a good you can produce, a service you can provide that nobody else is doing. That diversification is, I think, a major source of potential strength. And the farmers out there, the herbalists out there, look at your land, look at your crops, look at your own talents, look at what what you have, and then try to figure out what people want. And yeah, you know, 
maybe you know, maybe you will you will find um, a niche providing vegetables to the local restaurant trade. Maybe you will find a niche providing um, scented products that people want for sachets and things like that, and appropriate yeah. and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Find out what people want that you can do, and you'll do fine. Yeah, yeah. Don't get into the pro- don't get caught up in in these the sort of yuppie logic that says, well, I'm going to follow my dreams and everything else. Everyone else will just have to do what I want them to do. Uh, no. Yeah. Well, this, this brings us to another question that uh-huh. I that we have, um, and this will probably be the last question in this line. Uh, but what about this dream? that a lot of young people have, and this is the dream I've had and ACF has had in the past too, but of going to the country and form, forming a commune. What, oh. <laughs> what's wrong with that? Okay. Uh, how long of a list do you want? Well, I'm going to start with the practicalities, okay? Right. Yeah. The, the first practicality is the average commune crashes and burns in two years. Uh-huh. The average. That means half the average, yes. <laughs> That means half of them don't make it to that. We're, we're at the trailing edge of the commune period. I mean, communes were really big in this country right around 1900. Um, the first great wave happened in the 1830s. There was a French crackpot, and I, I use that term advisedly, Charles Fourier. Fourier believes that he understood the truth about human social evolution. He believed that um, if that if everyone adopted his view, uh, the world would become a utopia. Torrents of cosmic citric acid would descend from the heavens and turn the ocean to lemonade. He said that. He was crazy. Stone cold nuts. But he had this uh, this utopian notion that if everything was simply run according to passional attraction, then the work would get done so much easier. And it was a total disaster in, in practice. But um, thousands of communes from starting in the 1830s were founded to try to put his theories in practice. And then you had some of those utopian socialists, and you had all the anarchist communes and so on. The, 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 the 60s, which is what everyone thinks these days, it's the sort of era of communes, that was late, the final echo. So around here in the a little bit north, in the 1800s, we had the Oneida community. Yeah, the Oneida commune, yes, which started out as a free love commune and <laughs> ended up turning into a suburb. Right, and, and that was in the 1800s, and people, I mean, that's like it, very it, 1960s it, kind of uh, yeah, thing. Yeah, there, there was nothing original about the 1960s. Okay, I, I, I know I'm a, I'm a member of the, I'm a member of the baby boom generation. The baby boom generation has been fixated on the utter uniqueness and cultural brilliance of the 1960s. The 60s were a rehash of things that had been in circulation since about 1810. And so, so yeah, the Oneida Commune was was among the many. It actually did pretty well. They managed yeah, to survive yeah. for you know for, for some decades before they collapsed and turned into a commune or and turned into a sub a suburb. Right, it, it, yeah. so some some communities do seem to make it, and then they're also like like monasteries, for instance. That's a different kind oh, yeah. of. Oh thing. yeah, no, the mon- monasteries or the other the the other great example, which is for all practical purposes a monastery, is the Shakers. They're, they've yeah, got yeah. one. They've got one place left up in Sabbath Day Lake Lane. It's Sabbath Day Lake, Maine, but I do speak English sometimes. <laughs> up in Sabbath Day Lake in Maine, they have they they there is still one Shaker house and a handful of people left in it. Um, the point, the the thing that makes the monastic life work is that if you have people who are willing to pledge themselves to chastity, to poverty, and to obedience, 
then yes, you can make an enormous amount of work. But right. how many of us want to live that way? Yeah, and you have to have that spiritual ideal to fixate on. Exactly. You have to have that spiritual ideal. You have to have that 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 ascetic tradition. You have to be willing to set everything else aside in order to, to seek God, or it's not going to work. And the uh, an enormous number of those communes from the eighteen from the eighteen thirties onwards um, were trying to do what monasteries did and still have family lives, still have sex, still have um, you know personal possessions, still have fun, and it doesn't work. Seriously, it doesn't work. Now, one of the things, one of the crucial points here, of course, is that people think of running, a lot of people think of running off to the country are middle class types who have never done farming before. And they think, oh, we can do you know, a little bit of gardening and the plants will feed us. And uh, you know how, how that turns out. Right. Yeah. I mean, the learning curve for gardening is pretty actually steep. And then when you actually figure out how much food it takes to feed yourself for a year and how much work it takes to grow that it's mm-hmm. just a it's a pretty uh and, I mean, that, and that's that's the point at which most communes collapse is when right, they realize right. that yeah exactly exactly and so and mind you you have to do this while still paying your property taxes and so on so yeah all the intermediation and, yeah and and health codes and yeah and all the other intermediation so no the whole commune thing it is there there's this there's this old legend I think it's in the in the Arabian Nights where there is this mountain somewhere that's made of lodestone. It's made. It's a magnetic mountain, and so as your ship sails past it, past it, all the you know your, your all the nails, everything iron in your ship will be drawn irresistibly to the iron to the the mountain, and it'll be wrecked against the against the shore. The dream of the commune is the magnetic mountain of the American popular imagination. Ah. You know, it's this thing that drags people off their um, off their course and into into inevitable wreckage, and and yet it's and yet it springs it's you know it springs infernal. Um, I had somebody on on one of my blogs a little while ago, going, you know, I I, I don't you know I, we really need to work to build a, a meaningful synergistic community here among people of this blog, and I was going, no, we don't. Well, yeah. So it, part of it seems to me one of the problems is you can't force these things to happen. Like no. they, yeah. they have to evolve organically or you. they don't evolve. Exactly. The great fallacy, it, it's actually another form of the fallacy that I was talking about. The follow your dream and everyone else must follow suit. The number of people who think they can manufacture a community to stack do what they want the community to do and not and not do the things they don't want a community to do. And of course they inevitably fail. Communities are organic. They're not made. They're born or they're not born, as the case may be. If they happen, they emerge naturally out of the interactions of people. If you try to manufacture them, it's like trying to manufacture a tree. It does not work. Right. That's the end of part one. For part two of the conversation, where we talk about biochemic cell salts, the subtle energy body, and all sorts of other fun stuff, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash plantcunning.